This is Financing the Future, a UNEPFI podcast with the changemakers serving people and planet. I'm your host, Elliot Harris. More and more companies around the world are using non-financial information with regard to environmental, social and governance factors, ESG, to help them to identify material risks and growth opportunities, and also to prepare themselves for the evolving challenges that they face in the future. Achieving ESG compliance can be costly and is time consuming. But when that is done right, it can also be very, very rewarding. I think um, there's been huge progress in that aspect, particularly of the past three years. But I think this uh, is not sufficient uh, because there's a lot of risk of greenwashing. We're joined today by Ms. Jessica Tan, who is the co-chief executive officer of Ping An Group one of the three largest integrated financial groups in China. Ms. Tan is also quite passionate about sustainable finance. She is a member of UNEPFI's Leadership Council, which consists of CEOs and chairpersons of banks and insurers who are mobilizing the financial community as a whole to support a sustainable, resilient and inclusive economy. Jessica, welcome. Thank you, Elliot. Pleasure to be here. Let's uh, jump right in. Um, the first complex of issues I'd like to touch on with you today is the importance of ESG and how your company, Ping An, understands the imperatives of sustainability. Why is ESG important to you, Jessica, and how has this translated into Ping An's sustainability journey? Uh, simply put, it's important for our uh, customers, clients. Um, it's important, therefore, for our business and increasingly important for our employees. Uh, and I'll give some examples of how material that might be. For our clients, um, we are very large, uh, one of the largest insurer, uh, insurance. Um, you know, we do a lot of financing and investments as well in our bank. Um, and a lot of our clients, for example, our corporate clients, uh, we actually insure, we invest in power plants and stuff. And I think our clients would like to make sure their business is sustainable. Right. Even for our retail customers, we have about, uh, you know, 200 of a million uh, financial services customers. Actually, since 2021, we actually launched a very little effort just to get a sense of, you know, how they think about such things. We have about 300 over a thousand clients who signed up, whereby they themselves volunteer to be, you know, commit to certain green actions, get some credits mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Right. So it's even on the top of minds of our individual retail clients. You know, from a business standpoint, I think, um, you know, because we insure and invest in a lot of large infrastructure projects, this is in nature also as an insurance, whereby we do a lot of these long-term investments. We want to make sure that these are actually sustainable throughout. Right. Uh, so a lot of green energy plants, um, you know, green buildings and stuff so that it can actually last for long. And actually, uh, you know, being kind of um, interested in weathers and catastrophe, this is one of the biggest uh, risks that we in our business as well. Uh, so clearly from a business standpoint, it's something that we should be caring with about. And then finally, from an employees and increasingly investors standpoint, uh, you know, younger folks are, you know, interested in ESG, not just environmental, but being socially responsible as well. Uh, so we do a lot of, uh, you know, community service uh, efforts, CSR efforts, whereby we do a lot of poverty alleviation, which is, um, you know, and a lot in agriculture. 
you know, helping not just the uh, farmers uh, be sustainable, but also environmentally friendly and stuff. Uh, and we've over 500,000 employees, you know, who volunteers and stuff. Right? So I think from these three aspects it's are anecdotal, but it shows how important this. And that leads to a really important issue, which is what is the role of regulators in in sort of setting the stage, setting the rules of the game, encouraging financial sector players to move towards more sustainable practices. China is well known for having a very comprehensive view of how to green the, the financial industry. What role do you see for official regulation and even legislation in driving change towards greater sustainability in the financial industry? Is enough being done? Should more be done? And how close a relationship should the industry have with its regulators? Yeah, I, I think it's a very important point. I believe um, without the role of regulations, um, I don't. I don't think there's enough impetus to get this done. <laughs> uh, and I, mm -hmm. I believe it's a, a dual role it plays. Uh, there has to be regulations to set certain minimum standards uh, and yeah. the stick, if you will, right? Because otherwise, there's just too many entities within the you know, whereby everyone's interest is not really aligned, right? So I think mm -hmm. um, I talked about environmental, um, you know, pollution, uh, you know, the uh, electric cars is another great example in China, whereby I think the government has done fantastic in issuing, in having credits, um, you know, green credits for electric cars that would offset basically, you know, the normal fuel costs. Uh, and that has really spurred a complete new industry growing right uh, so I think that's mm -hmm. a very important role on the other hand I think um, uh, we do need to understand the practicalities of many of these um, companies particularly smaller ones to actually comply with these standards it's easy to say uh, such things uh, but it does come at a cost um, and the cost comes in both government being able to monitor and enforce these standards and it also comes at the cost for companies, particularly smaller enterprises, to be able to comply with these standards, right? And I'll, I'll use the environment, uh, you know, pollution one as an example in Shenzhen, right? I mean, Shenzhen, um, you know, for a long time, it's nice if they do not have standards. They do have standards, uh, but they can only monitor with the, you know, these Internet of Things monitoring kind of devices for the largest 1,000 companies, right, mm -hmm. Shenzhen. Right. But companies that can pollute, frankly, is in the in the ballpark of 80,000 such companies all over right. Shenzhen. Um, and so that's one cost, right? Compliance regulatory costs. The regulations are uh, basically without thief, if you, teeth, if you will, if they cannot be enforced. So one of the things that I think this is where technology can help a role, whereby I think it reduces the cost of monitoring and compliance. Where we actually worked with the government for two years. Um, and build a platform whereby it can now monitor oh, 80,000, right? Some of them with uh, these devices, some of them whereby they actually have to take um, pictures of various meters, submitting them and stuff, uh, mm -hmm. improving the enforceability. The second cost I talked about was on the corporate side, whereby you have to comply right. with these standards. And for sure. many of them, sometimes it does take a lot more, um, which is why I think the uh, is a basically an economics um, a lesson. Uh, there has to be some penalty, which is why I think the stick is important. So there's an incentives and carrot for them to do the longer math. A lot of these uh, more, more mature technologies, actually, if you worked out over a five-year period, 
it does make better sense for you to adopt, for example, uh, you know, certain technologies, right? You're cleaner and stuff, right? If you look at cleaner, build, uh, greener buildings and things. Uh, so I think with the cost of the penalty being involved, uh, yeah. the math gets easier uh, and people, mm -hmm. I think, would adopt that, right? So I think these are very specific, uh, small examples, but much more needs to be done. I'm, I'm talking about areas now whereby there's mature technologies, but there's still right. a lot to go through. Um, and a lot of standards are not there. A lot of the technologies are not there. Um, and a lot more needs to be done. How do you see the fact that we don't have a universal single standard that everyone can adhere to? Does that complicate the journey? How, how can one deal with this difference of opinion, difference of standards, difference of, of aspirations? Um, it is a tough one because... Um, Every time someone tries to solve having many standards is they come up with yet another standard that someone has to harmonize it. Having been on many advisory committees um, mm -hmm. of various financial regulators and stuff, I've come to the view, I take it more as an accounting standard. There are now still many, many accounting standards out there. It really doesn't matter what, which standard you use, but that is made transparent and someone audits it as if it's a financial accounting, right? I mean, it's okay that to have IFRS 17 or IFRS 9 or gap accounting and various accounting standards. So I, I see it less as trying to argue over what is the perfect set of standards, but being transparent and having someone to be able to audit them. So I think at our last advisory discussion, I'm very supportive of now being, you know, adopted as part of the ISSB standards, right? Um, the way I see the future of this going is that I think um, first, you know, being being kind of audited like financial statements in some sense. So that's actually um, authority and credibility. I think secondly, being able, uh, and I think some of the tech companies are actually looking to do it, a little bit like the AIAS ESG reporting tool that I was mm -hmm. talking about. There has to be a way whereby you can easily report this. Otherwise, it becomes a pain. I mean, in the beginning when we started this, you, know, you have to have like tons of people reporting. It becomes too mundane to be able to do that. And I think some of the tech companies, if you look at like Microsoft and others, are looking at it. How do you actually be able to then automatically, you know, report on these standards. And then I think thirdly, there needs to be um, a market uh, whereby it kind of incentivize. I'm not a fan of some of the regulatory standards whereby you penalize. Some has talked about creating sort of like a Basel risk weighting, uh, mm -hmm. you know, for, for, for example, for certain of the um, technologies that are more polluting and stuff. I think we are not yet at that area. I think we're actually backfire because we're not yet mature uh, and there's just not enough data to provide risk weighting and stuff. But I'm more in whereby you can provide incentives for people to move uh, towards there um, and being able to do that. Um, you know, so, so I think that's kind of the uh, basic market infrastructure, if you will. Right. Uh, to actually allow for what we talked about, uh, the rest of the players to do their part. We see more and more that investors are interested in having ESG information about companies they might invest in. Gives them a sense of where things stand. We see as well that on stock markets, um, companies that are monitoring and reporting, disclosing their ESG performance, they're doing very well in terms of 
stock price. And the demand for that kind of information is rising very rapidly as we speak. Would that be enough? Would that be enough of an incentive that companies that report, that disclose, that are transparent, that they have greater chances of mobilizing the capital that they need on markets because they are reporting and transparent and accountable and people can measure their progress and understand what hidden risks might still be there. Would that be enough? And how should uh, regulators deal with that? Yeah, I think um, there's been huge progress in that aspect, of it, particularly of the past three years. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this uh, is not sufficient uh, because there's a lot of risk of greenwashing and because of the reasons I talked about these days, the standards that are being reported are not um, consistent nor audited, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are different uh, views and it's, uh, there's partial disclosure, uh, if you will. So I think it's yeah. definitely better than if not, but I think it's not sufficient. Um, right. It depends also on kind of what scale you're measuring from, I mean, from our standpoint in, in, internally, you know, I've been actually amazed at the speed in which uh, us promoting green investments and green insurance has been, um, you know, uh, we were, I mean, just in 2021, I think we said, you know, we would like to at least increase our green investment by 20 percent, our financing by 20 percent, premiums by 70 percent. I was a little bit worried if we would get there because this is mm -hmm. way above our thing. Um, when we looked at it last year, uh, we haven't disclosed our full year results, but even in the first three quarters, we were growing our green financing by 1.5 times, basically from 10 billion to 26 billion. Wow. Uh, our green investment went up by 40 percent, uh, 32 billion to 45 billion. Um, and then our insurance, you know, more than double from 7 billion to 16 billion. So I was I've been pleasantly surprised um, at that. I was frankly quite worried. So from an individual entity, you can say we we've done a lot, but this is mm -hmm. a drop in the water. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, as I said, we as a financial services player, we can only do so much. We can bring folks together, um, you know, to when there's a proper business case to do that, and then we incentivize and we help finance that over a period of time, five years at most, seven years. But there are lots of areas whereby, I mean, even looking just sustainability, I'm sure you you've done this, you know, you and have done lots of studies whereby, frankly, energy is only 20% of all the carbon emissions. Right? There are lots of other 80% where there's no viable. Um, no technology out there, right? Um, and these are a lot more earlier investments whereby uh, just as financial services player, we are not able to make that market work. We come in, fill a gap when there is a kind of maybe a, not a full picture and then we try to bridge that gap over a period of time uh, to do that. But it has to be a commercially viable solution. I think there are lots of areas uh, in the area of, you know, green food production, uh, mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you know, if you talk about plastics is another, you know, big, uh, you know, we're not going to do with plastics anytime soon. Um, you know, lots of these other areas whereby there's no viable one. And I think these clean tech used to be quite, um, you know, quite uh, vibrant. Uh, but I think with a lot of the uncertainty now, you know, there's not a lot of um, you know, long term investments made here, uh, including carbon capture. 
uh, technologies and stuff. So I think, um, you know, if you look at this, more needs to be done. You ask about the regulators, uh, I think, uh, or the government, if you will. Uh, there has to be more spearheaded, whereby whole industries put effort together, supported by the government, uh, you know, to move those uh, needle. And I think then that would actually get us, you know, much bigger movements in the area. That's that's an interesting point. Um, and that comes back again now to this question of the relationship between the private industry, private finance, and then the government. Uh, and which comes first? Do Does the government set the rules of the game that oblige and that then sort of make it increasingly commercially feasible, viable to put together projects, technology-based projects that drive the agenda, bring more sustainability, reduce pollution, help with the carbon footprint? Or is it something that the financial industry can do in that the financial industry provides resources that they are shifting away from unsustainable activities, because that's one of the problems that we face today. It's still far too easy to make a profit doing unsustainable things. I think financial services players definitely can continue to do more, right. uh, mm -hmm. but these only solve one part of the issue, right? I mean, I'm looking bigger as in, you know, I think we're all in this, for example, if you talk about the, you know, the Paris Agreement and stuff like that, uh, whereby, mm -hmm. you know, you know, Energy being one aspect really is only 20% of the emissions, right? That's and right. then just looking mm -hmm. at green. There's a lot more other areas whereby there's not even a solution out there, right? Um, you know, and if if it's not led um, by, you know, government or regulator, uh, it would be very hard economically to make any business case for any financial services player or any corporate player for that matter. Yeah. Do you see awareness in the government, in the regulatory community of that responsibility, that they sometimes in certain areas need to actually drive the change through their own regulation? Yeah, very surprised and encouraged by the uh, electric cars. When the yeah. government mm -hmm. committed that, um, I thought, oh, wow, what an ambitious goal. Uh, and then it came a lot of you know, regulations and supporting things whereby Particularly, I think this um, carbon credit, um, right. you know, offsetting, you know, the penalty on fuel costs suddenly used to be, I mean, we we have a car portal too. I mean, in China, there's about 24 million cars being sold, new cars sold a year, give or take 2 million. Um, you know, it used to be less than 10% on electric cars just two, three years right. ago. Right. Last year was 20 plus percent. Right. I think it will be a third very soon, um, you know, just mm -hmm. and everyone rushed into it. Now, it takes a lot actually to create the electric car. If the government were not to make that regulations and the penalty with the credit, mm -hmm. no one would actually invest so much to build electric car plants. Right. They would always right. be stuck in this. So, mm -hmm. so I think it does provide impetus uh, and can do a lot when I when you see the whole the carrot and stick kind of moving right. along the area. And, you know, industries like automobiles, just one industry, there's many mm -hmm. other areas uh, that right. I think can, can benefit from more. Uh, and I think, you know, leading countries, uh, government regulators, I think if they you know, do that, I think Europe is a great example. I think they're, they would want the first ones to do the carbon tax. And, it's, you know, they are still mm -hmm. the most vibrant uh, carbon right. trading market mm -hmm. uh, and what can be done. Yeah. Jessica, if you allow it. I'd like to come back to the specific challenges that might face different parts of the financial industry 
in moving towards greater sustainability. Ping An is an insurance company, but you're an integrated financial group. You have activities in insurance underwriting. You're also a one of the largest asset owners in China, perhaps even in the world. Um, you have great lending operations, but you also provide infrastructure investments, funding for infrastructure investments. Um, are there important differences in how ESG is applied to these different aspects of your, your business? And does insurance as a sector, as a segment of the financial industry, does it face particular challenges given that if we don't deal with the problems, for example, of climate change, it's the insurance industry that ends up paying the bill. And so that really attacks your bottom line as a whole, which might give you more incentives to say, become more proactive in driving change towards greater sustainability among your clients. How do you see the insurance sector today? And let's say in 2030, in five years time or six years time, thinking about how it deals with its core business from the perspective of sustainability. Um, from insurance side, there's, there's two areas when it impacts us. One is, of course, our liability side, which basically are the premiums and the clients we uh, insure, particularly, I think, in our property and casualty. Mm -hmm. um, right, whereby you insure large clients, large business, large projects and stuff like that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it also impacts us from um, investment portfolio standpoint. Right, on our asset side, uh, because as a very large insurer, we invest about our insurance investment portfolio is about 4.2 trillion yuan. Um, a lot of which we because we require our average 10 years, about 10 years in nature. Mm -hmm. So we do therefore invest in many of these projects. So from both sides, it's important for us, um, as I started off to say that we need to make sure that these are sustainable. Right, and therefore comes in many of the risks, be it climate risk, pollution risk, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, and it will feature in the way that we underwrite and price projects. Uh, it will feature also in when we evaluate what type of investments we made. Right, So it is also, mm -hmm. that's why a very virtual cycle for us to want to promote this uh, for our own uh, sake as well. Uh, and one of the things that I think um, we're doing more of and I believe you talked about in the future, 20, 2030, I'm sure it will become even more relevant. Uh, we are now not just pricing, insuring risks, um, but we are also doing more to even prevent that, right? Uh, so we, we started uh, an area in our property and casualty insurance whereby uh, for some of our corporate and government clients, we actually put in some of the tech platform whereby we monitor we try to reduce the risk, um, you know, when we design, for example, very simple examples like buildings, uh, mm -hmm. when we insure the buildings, we don't just, we don't like to insure buildings that are already there. Uh, you know, we like to, you know, do it um, as they're building it. We have actually architects, engineers to help design this properly, not just with a better energy efficiency, but all the safety, et cetera, regulations and stuff. So we try to mm -hmm. basically, we almost build a value added services arm, right? right. Uh, with the view of basically getting involved upfront, designing and managing risk. Uh, and I think that should be, you know, consistent with the way that's both kind of sustainable as well as I think just good business practice. That, that's a very important point, um, is that what now is 
a good business practice will continue to change uh, as we look forward, as we deal with some of these risks. And as you say, uh, instead of just reacting to the risk, one can try to prevent the risk as well through through the way one engages. Um, do you see that as being sort of the new approach or let's say a more broadly based approach for the insurance industry as a whole, as one of the ways in which they deal with with sustainability concerns? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I believe this should be the way to go. That's synergistic, not just for us, but also for actually our clients. Um, the property and casualty insurance, if you study over the hundreds plus years of existence, it has very cyclical in nature. Yeah. Typically, mm -hmm. it, will, it will wipe out and then you will go out again. Um, in the US, in the more mature markets in the past, um, there are catastrophic bonds and others to basically offset risk and stuff. But right. that's just really smoothing the risk. It still exists, right? Yeah. And I think these days we've, with the sustainability agenda, with the technology sometimes in place. Because sometimes mm -hmm. in the past, you may want to do this, but you're also limited by the number of people that you have, right? By the ability, yeah. you may go design it, but frankly, you have no idea if your clients are complying with it, right? Um, you know, so I think now with, um, uh, with the increased emphasis on ESG and the ability to do it, uh, you know, I think that should be, you know, we believe that should be the way to do it. So now with our, some of our clients and large infrastructure projects, we actually, you know, after helping them design insurer, we actually give them a monitoring platform. <laughs> you can see yeah. live, uh, you know, for example, in agriculture, we give the government a free thing. You can right. look at what crops are being done, how's the progress, right? right? Because mm -hmm. nobody wants a weather catastrophe and then, you know, they lose their crops. We got to pay, you know, we lose right. food, we lose income, right? Uh, yes. So why not we actually start off? you know, monitoring mm -hmm. all the risk and standards and helping to reduce that. So I think it's, you know, as we, we've been doing this now for over uh, one plus year, and it seems to be quite popular, you know, with our clients and stuff. So, mm -hmm. you know, I believe hopefully that should be the way to go. Well, Jessica, thank you very much. You've given us an excellent overview of some of the challenges that you've been facing in this path towards greater sustainability and greater ESG compliance as well as some of the ways in which you've been uh, dealing with uh, these challenges. I mean, you, you mentioned the fact that we we can use technology to improve our understanding of these risks and monitoring how well we're doing as a way of helping also to prevent the risks from being quite as impactful as they may have been in the past. One point I'd like to take away with me, and I hope others uh, see this also as critically important, is that it is not just about icing risk and recognizing it and absorbing it and managing it is also about reducing it and preventing it where where possible and that there are different ways in which the insurance industry the financial industry itself can help their clients to do so my name is elliot harris uh we come to the end of this uh episode of our, our podcast series with jessica tan the co-ceo of pingan insurance Co group from china did you enjoy this conversation Please do stay in touch with us on our social media handles at UNEP underscore FI, or you can find UNEP Environment Program Finance Initiative on LinkedIn. Goodbye.